Well, we began our study last week in 1 John, and due to my lengthy introduction, uh, we didn't get as far as I'd planned on, but we're going to move forward today. I was thinking about this this morning, driving over. Of course, we discussed the fact last week that uh, 1 John was written between 85 and 90 A.D., a lot of Bible scholars put it closer to 90 A.D., some 60 years after the resurrection and ascension of Christ into heaven. And that puts John, the apostle, at about 90 years of age when he wrote this. And I was thinking about that in light of the current situation in our world today, especially perhaps in the Western world, United States of America, where uh, for the most part, someone of that's 90 years of age has been pretty much written off by our society, right? It's not like it used to be where there was a lot of respect and admiration for the elderly. Sadly, they're looked upon as a burden and are not really viewed as someone who has a lot to offer at that age. And yet, when you look at the amazing, incredible wisdom and insight, of course, we do have to acknowledge that John was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, I thought it would be interesting just to make note this morning as we continue on. We are reading the writings of a 90-year-old man. Think about that the next time you see somebody in that age group. Maybe someone to here today is in that age group somebody watching on the internet or so forth, and rather than writing them off, maybe they do have something worth listening to, right? Because we do live in a world today where youth is worshipped. Am I not correct? Youth is worshipped. And so people try to maintain an eternal youthfulness. Sadly, if they just wait, if they put their faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior of their souls, one day, they will have eternal youth. And it won't cost them a dime. As I mentioned the other uh, couple Sundays ago, I think, or maybe last week, when my wife and I have been indulging in some of the old black and white movies as of late. It's kind of fun because there's no profanity and no uh, sex scenes and so forth. But uh, one of my favorites was always Hedy Lamar. And a few years ago, the uh, information began to come out that she was the one along with another gentleman who invented the technology that led to Bluetooth and wireless cell phone technology. She actually was a brilliant inventor. She's always known basically for just being a beautiful Hollywood bombshell, but she was actually highly intelligent. But I, I watched a documentary on her where a lot of the information focused on that other side of her, the inventor and so forth, and how being a female... This invention actually took place in the 1940s and uh, it was submitted to the Navy and it could have revolutionized their uh, torpedo technology, but they, they put it on the back burner. Later on, they picked up the technology and used it for wireless communications and so forth. But in the course of the documentary, uh, it showed her, of course, aging and that uh, like so many in Hollywood, she began to indulge in the plastic surgery and so forth. And by the end of her life, she was pretty much unrecognizable. It was pretty sad. 
And I kept thinking, what if she had just allowed herself to age gracefully and naturally? I think she probably would have made a much more lovely older woman, but she was obsessed like so many with trying to maintain that eternal youth. Just saying all that to point out the fact that 90-year-old John the Apostle has some tremendous words of wisdom for us. And although it's difficult to watch our youth gradually fade away, one day we will be perfected. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and your word today. We ask that you would bless it, that you would just cause your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and minds. Bless this study in Jesus' name. Amen. We left off. Now I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. We got through verse 1 last week. Let's read verses 1 through 5. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We left off with the last phrase in verse 1 concerning the word of life. And then, I believe we read this verse last week, but I'm going to read it again, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible, that word of life in John 1.1, 1, 1, the W is capitalized because Jesus is the Word. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is the Word, the Logos, of life. Following Jesus is not just a way of life. And of course, there are those out there who the universalists who will say, well, Jesus is just one way, one path. There are many paths that lead to a cosmic consciousness or something along those lines. But that's not what the Scriptures teach us. He is the word of life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not just a way of life. He is life. And even though we might have biological function, we're a living, breathing organism. There is no true, eternal life apart from Him. Because contained within these earthen vessels is an eternal spirit that's going to exist forever. But for those who reject Christ... There's an eternal existence which will be one of torment. But it's not life. It's an eternal existence, an eternal state of being, but it's not life. Because only in Christ may we have eternal life, joy, peace, forever and ever. 
knowing that he is the life, life is found in him, for us as believers, this should cause us to rejoice for ourselves and for all those who know him, even as we mourn for those who do not. There's no hope for any human being who rejects the one who is the life. It's that simple. All right, so we're going to move on now to verse 2. The life was manifested, or as some translations say, appeared. The life appeared. This is a specific reference, of course, to the incarnation of Christ. Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. The life appeared. Jesus, the Word, who is the life, who has existed forever with the Father and the Holy Spirit, was manifested. He came to earth. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, John is giving us a very detailed, systematic rundown. He presented himself in verse 1 as an eyewitness. We've heard, we've seen, we've touched. And here we go again. We've seen and bear witness. So John reiterates that he's an eyewitness of the incarnation of the one and only Son of the living God. He basically, if you will, is testifying under oath. And he says, and declare to you that eternal life. The eternal life that's found in Christ and Christ alone. The promise for those who put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus is not just for this life. Again, often you will hear very well-intentioned, sincere pastors, preachers, teachers talk about all the wonderful benefits in this life for those who follow Christ. This is particularly true within the prosperity churches, the word of faith, name it and claim it churches. There's a tremendous focus on what you can get here and now. You've heard me quote before from the infamous Reverend Ike. I don't know how many remember him. He goes way back. Used to be on TV years ago. Reverend Ike's message was, you can have your pie in the sky now with ice cream on top. And yet, as you really examine the Scriptures, a lot of the promises that God gives us concerning this life have to do with suffering. <laughs> right? I mentioned last week the cross of Christ, the cross of rejection. See, the emphasis in God's Word is not on what we can get in this life. The emphasis in God's Word is on eternity. Because as we all know, you can become wealthy and prosperous and successful in this life and still spend an eternity in hell. And you can't take any of that stuff with you. So when John talks about life, he's not talking about a new Cadillac and a house on Rio Grande Boulevard. Have you seen some of those places? Man. And I'm sure all of us have had thoughts, boy, I'd sure like to live there, you know. But what did Jesus promise us? In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. 
You mean you can't wait 70 years for your eternal mansion? That's never going to deteriorate. You're never going to have to paint. You're never going to have to restucco. You're never going to have to repair the roof. You're never going to have to fix the plumbing. Get the picture? Again, we know that people do use many crutches in this life to get by. They will tell us that our Christianity is just a crutch. But the fact of the matter is that in Christ we do have hope, we do have protection. doesn't mean that Christians don't suffer. We do sometimes. But we have a source of peace, a source of comfort, a source of strength that those apart from Christ do not have. But we have more than that. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, listen to this, we are of all men the most pitiable. Because again, we are held to a higher standard as children of God. The, the worldly person, the secular person, the non-believer has carte blanche to go out and go for the gusto. Right? And we've all heard the stories about movie stars and rock stars and different people selling their soul to Satan for fame and for success and for fortune. And even though all of them probably don't get on, down on their knees and pray to Satan, there's a mentality, there's a heart attitude that says, I'm willing to do anything to achieve this. And the devil takes that as a prayer. And he honors those prayers, if you will. And when he's done blessing you, he comes in and wipes you out. The Elvis Presleys, the Michael Jacksons, it goes on and on. But I don't believe these things are confined just to the entertainment industry. I believe there are people in every walk of life, in financial institutions, in the government, who have done that same thing. Maybe not directly, but indirectly, they have said to whoever or whatever out there is listening, I'll do anything to achieve this level of success, this power, this money, and so forth. In fact, it's very obvious and right in front of our faces every day in this modern age in which we live. And so here we are, believers, Christians, trying to do our best to be godly, to live a godly life, to do the right thing, to not give in to the temptations of the flesh, but if there's no eternal life, then that's why Paul says we're to be pitied above all people. Because here we are restraining ourselves, resisting, not pursuing these things like those who have no hope, those who have no faith. Everything they know is here and now. i got to get it now because that's all there is. There are a lot of easier paths one may follow than the way of the cross. The problem is in today's world, and unfortunately because of some of the teaching or non-teaching that goes on in so many churches, a lot of people have been led to believe the Reverend Ike doctrine. You can have your pie in the sky now with ice cream on top. They don't understand the way of the cross. They don't understand the cross of Christ. They don't understand the cross of rejection and self-denial, which is required of those who follow Christ. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, 
And by the way, that's the way it works. I think we all know that here today. I think some believers expect Jesus to come after them. Come on, Jesus, what are you doing? Get with the program, let's go. Oh no, we're to come after him. The problem is he might lead us some places we don't want to go. In fact, he told Peter that at the end of his earthly ministry before he ascended into heaven. He said, one day men are going to lead you someplace you don't want to go. And that was to the cross. And that's when you find out who really believes. That's when you find out who is truly born again. That's when you find out who is really serious about having a relationship with God when they're willing to follow Jesus someplace they don't want to go. I'm not sure there's a whole lot of that around these days if you want to know the truth. So many people are so happy to follow Jesus as long as He takes them where they want to go or they're allowed to lead Him where they want to go. So what Paul is saying is, why bother being a believer unless we have the sure and certain promise of eternal life in Christ by the way we do? We do have that sure and certain promise of eternal life in Christ. And that's why John's emphasizing that here in the early part of his first epistle. And then he says that that word of life, that eternal life, which was with the Father. Jesus pre-existed and co-existed with the Father in heaven from eternity past. Genesis 1.26 Then God, the Hebrew word is Elohim, it is plural. Then God, who is one and yet plural, said, let us make man in our image. And by the way, in my Bible, the U for us is capitalized and the O for our is capitalized because we're speaking here of God, of deity, and we're also speaking of all three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Jesus was born approximately 2,000 years ago in a stable in Bethlehem, born of the Virgin Mary, all 100% God, 100% man. But He has always existed. John 8.58 Jesus said to them, to the Pharisees, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That doesn't sound grammatically or grammatically correct, does it? Before Abraham was, I am. Was, am. And by the way, that's capitalized in my Bible too. I am. Whose name is that? What did God tell Moses when he spoke to Moses from the burning bush? Moses says, well, okay, remember Moses had a big go-round with God, right? He's been gone from Egypt 40 years. He's out in the desert. He's become a shepherd. His uh, picture's been hanging in the post office in Cairo for 40 years. What a dead or alive. Moses, former prince of Egypt. For murder, capital offense. He's just out there in the desert talking to sheep all day. He's perfectly happy. 
God calls him to go back and deliver his people. I'm not your man. Can't even speak well. Nah, all he's been doing is talking to sheep all day. Moses said, okay, hypothetically speaking, let's say that I do go, God. Who am I going to tell them sent me? God said, I am. Do you remember that? I am. I'm getting chills right now just saying that. God's not the great I was or the great I will be. He's the great I am. And Jesus just told these guys who were too dense to even understand it, or they did understand it, and all it did was make them mad. Before Abraham was, before Abraham existed, I am. Wow. That gives me chills. Jesus is the great I am. He is God. The only time in human history that God invaded this planet in human form. I'd say that that whole situation deserves a lot more attention than it gets. Wouldn't you? It's the most significant event in human history. And yet even believers so often... We just kind of pass it off. We overlook it. How dynamic and powerful that is. Which was with the Father and was manifested, there's that word again, or has appeared to us. There's a certain amount of redundancy here in these first few verses of 1 John chapter 1 because he really is trying to drive home the significance of these things. And 60 years later, they're still fresh in the heart and mind of this 90-year-old man. And was manifested or has appeared to us. Jesus left his home in heaven in order to come down to earth and offer himself as the sacrifice for our sins. Philippians 2, 6-8. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, God could have chosen to send his son into this world by any number of means, right? He could have been born in a palace. He could have been the son of a queen and a king and so forth. He could have been born into wealth. He could have been born into a situation where people would have automatically revered him and honored him. But instead, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And by the way, when we speak about the worship of youth and how people try so hard to stay youthful as long as possible, for Jesus... Becoming a man was a giant step down. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So now we move on to verse 3. We're making some good time here today that which we've seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the father 
and with his son Jesus Christ. John again reiterates that he's writing to his readers as one who was and is an eyewitness. We have seen and heard. Boy, he just keeps hammering on this, doesn't he? He wants us to know. I know what I'm talking about. I was there. I was with him. He was an eyewitness to the incarnation of the Son of God. And he wants us to know so that we also may have fellowship with him and his fellow believers. The Greek word uh, koinonan or koinonia. We have koinonia groups here in the church. It means fellowship or communion. Having all things in common. And so John is telling us that the basis for true Christian fellowship, the only basis for true, deep, lasting fellowship between human beings is a transformational belief in Jesus Christ as the incarnate Son of God, the God-man. Now you can have your karate for the king, your bowling for believers, your golfing for God, swimming for the saints, and so forth. But if you don't have a shared koinonia and this deep truth that Jesus, the living Word, the Word of life, the one and only Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, came into this world, died on the cross for our sins, and on the third day He rose from the dead. That's where the real fellowship is. Everything else is just surface. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's that transformational relationship with God that takes us to that deepest level of true fellowship with Him and with one another. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face, and it's a reference there to Moses. Remember Moses went up to meet with God on Mount Sinai? And when he came back, he was glowing. When you get that close to the very presence of God, it was kind of like radioactive. He came down glowing, and so that people wouldn't freak out, he put a veil over his face. And then gradually, the longer he was away from God, it faded. Isn't that interesting? We with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Greek word is metaphorao. I can't quite say it. It's metamorpho, metamorpho, metamorphosis. It means to change into another form, to transform, to transfigure. Remember the transfiguration of Jesus? That was a metamorphosis. The three men who witnessed the Lord's transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, had a connection, a koinonia between themselves and with Jesus that no one else could share with them. They saw the Lord in all of His glory. It's also the word that is used for when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Metamorphosis. 
That's what it means to be born again. Transform. And that's where the true, deep fellowship with God and one another takes place. He says, truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So in order to be connected, to have koinonia with those who have a relationship with God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, is to be connected with God Himself and vice versa. Remember how Jesus said, I'm in my Father, my Father's in me, and you're in me. We're all interconnected. That only happens through metamorphosis. 1 John 3.23 says, this is His commandment, Jesus' commandment. One, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, Yeshua. God is our salvation. Christ, Christos, Mashiach, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior of the world. We believe on His name. And then secondly, the other part of His commandment, love one another as He gave us commandment. John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And again, see there's um, two, two Greek words in the New Testament for uh, love. There's phileo, which means brotherly love, warm, tender feelings of affection. That's where the name for the city of Philadelphia comes from. Phileo, Philadelphia. There's nothing wrong with brotherly love, warm, tender feelings of affection. But the deeper word is agape. God's unconditional love. We can only get to that level through this transformational process, metamorphosis, born again. We also use the term converted. Remember Uncle Ben's converted rice? I'm not sure what that meant. What was it converted from? From a healthy substance to a non-healthy one? Maybe. But conversion is real. You don't hear that word used much anymore. There was a time when they would say, well, especially if you're part of a denomination and you have to send in your monthly report, how many converts did you have this month? But it's called conversion. It's transformation. It's more than just head knowledge. It's more than just religion. It's entering into a true, personal relationship with God. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Proverbs 18.24, I think I referenced this verse last week. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The friend who sticks closer than a brother, and this is where koinonia comes in, communion, fellowship, and that's what John's talking about. Our fellowship, he says, is in the Father and in the Son being transformed by the renewing of our minds. The friend who sticks closer than a brother is the one who shares your faith in the incarnate, risen Son of God. doesn't mean we shouldn't love our biological family and friends whether they know Christ or not. But when the rubber meets the road, and this, this is where it's unfortunate that so many people in the church don't put enough priority on their relationship with their fellow believers. Because relationship with our fellow believers is the only way 
that we get nurtured in our faith. We get nurtured through the Word of God, but another important aspect of being nurtured spiritually is interacting with other like-minded believers, something you may not have with your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your co-workers, your neighbors. And the fact of the matter is, those to whom we relate the most are the ones who are going to have the largest influence in our lives. Do you know that? Verse 4. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Does God want us to have fullness of joy? Absolutely. Is he talking about warm, fuzzy feelings? You see, because understanding these, what I would call deeper things of God, even though in, in one way they're kind of rudimentary, I mean, this is the starting point, really, being born again, acknowledging Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that He died on the cross for your sins, that He's willing to wash you and cleanse you with His precious blood to transform you, to give you new life. On one level, it's basic and fundamental and foundational, but on another level, this is the very knowledge that propels us going forward and enables us to live a life of joy no matter what's going on around us. Warm, fuzzy feelings come and go, do they not? I had some a few minutes ago when I was talking about I am. Doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while, sometimes it happens when I'm leading worship. Once in a while it happens when I'm teaching. But I literally tingle. But you know what? If I relied upon that tingling to keep me strong in my faith and keep me moving forward, I'd be in big trouble because it doesn't happen that often. You could probably apply this to your marriage as well. I suspect that you don't tingle about your spouse every day. Sometimes you do, and when you do, you enjoy it. But the, there's joy. Like, Let me think. Let's see. My wife and I are coming up on see, 38 years, I think it is. Is that right, Georgia? This month. This month. There's joy. I mean, we've had our bumps in the road like everybody else. But there's joy in knowing, man, we've been together over half of our lives. We've hung in there. We've stayed the course. We don't have warm, fuzzy feelings for each other every day. We have them pretty often for as long as we've been married. But there's joy in knowing that you've got that relationship and it stands firm and it's solid and it's strong and it goes on. That your joy may be full. And again, knowing that no matter what this life throws at you, one day you're going to be with God for all eternity. No one or no thing can take that joy away from you. There are things in this life that cause us to be sad, to be sorrowful, to grieve. But in the midst of that, God's joy is always there. But here's, it gets interesting. I mentioned a moment ago. Some translations actually read, these things we write to you that our joy may be full. In 3 John 1.4, he writes, I have no greater joy, listen to this, than to hear that my children, he's talking about his children in the faith, 
He's a shepherd of the flock. He considers those under him to be his children, spiritual children. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children laugh in the Spirit, get slain in the Spirit, right? Swing from the chandeliers in the Spirit. No, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. The greatest joy for the Apostle John was to know that his children in the faith were walking in the truth. And this is the fellowship he's talking about. The oneness, the unity with God and with God's people walking in the truth. John's joy was made complete by the knowledge that his little children were walking in the truth. Then finally, verse 5. This is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light. That would explain why Moses was glowing, wouldn't it? God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And this contrast of light and darkness, which begins here in verse 5, will run all the way through chapter 2, verse 17. This is a big theme in this first epistle of John. He says, this is the message which we have heard from him. They saw him, they heard him, they touched him, and he gave them the message to bring to us. So confirming and affirming the message of the apostles, the New Testament writers, he's confirming to us that they are indeed the words of God and not the words of men. He says, this is the message which we heard from him. These aren't our words. These are his words. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes to Timothy, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then Hebrews 1.2, God in these last days has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. Confirming what John said, this is the message we've heard from Him. In these last days, God has spoken to us through His Son. And now, John says, we declare to you. So Jesus entrusted the message to the apostles who have in turn conveyed it to us to be protected, preserved, and promulgated. And this is another thing that kind of makes me sad. This is no small thing. The Spirit of God writing through the writers of the New Testament, the apostles and the others, Jude, James, the brothers of Jesus, half-brothers of Jesus, those who wrote the books of the New Testament, Dr. Luke, the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. These weren't their words. They're the words of God. And yet so many people today are taking things like Jesus Calling by Sarah Young and the writings of our America's pastors, Joel Osteen and Rick Warren, and they're elevating these things to the same level as the Word of God. Are you kidding me? There's no comparison. It's not even close. The best book ever written by man could never begin to compare with the Word of God. I don't know about now, but I know in his heyday, Rick Warren had churches across America studying his book from the pulpit. He was mentoring a whole bunch of basically Baptist churches, 
And the Baptist church, many aspects of the Baptist church went off onto the seeker-friendly route following after Rick Warren. And I know people get offended when I talk like this, but tough. <laughs> That's tough. They would spend an entire year going through his book from the pulpit. To me, that, that reeks of blasphemy, folks. The only book we should be studying from this pulpit is the Bible, the Word of God. You could burn every other book in the world and we'd be fine as long as you keep the Bible. Now, I admire C.S. Lewis, Corey Ten Boom. I have my favorites, Christian writers, Christian authors. And they've had great impact, positive impact in the world through their writings. Francis Schaeffer. I don't see too many people of that caliber on the horizon today. But nothing can compare or even come close to the Word of God. John says, we declare to you, we're bringing you the message that he gave us. It means to be to make known by open declaration, to publish, proclaim, formally, or put into operation. To set forth or teach publicly a creed or doctrine. We declare to you. And you've probably heard me say this before in the past. I'll say it again. I do not believe it's our job, my job as a pastor, teacher, to come up with some new revelation from God which men have claimed, like Benny Hinn and Joseph Smith, started a whole new cult based upon what he claimed to have heard from God. Ellen G. White, Robert D Herbert W. Armstrong, all these cult leaders claim to have a new revelation from God. Basically, if you find yourself sitting somewhere listening to someone telling you they have a new revelation from God, I recommend you run as fast as you can. And if you're reading a book and the writer claims to have a new revelation from God, I recommend that you throw it in the trash. Now, I might sound kind of old-fashioned and fundamentalist and out of step and out of date, and I take that as a compliment. B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. You know that one? I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. My job, our job, is simply to proclaim. Like John says here, we declare to you, we proclaim, we declare. The revealed Word of God is once delivered to all the saints. Jude chapter 1 verse 3. Once delivered to all the saints by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. You see, no matter how Good, some book might be by a Christian author. I think there's more bad than there are good. But it's still the words of man and therefore cannot be considered 100% reliable. Right? The only book we can count on to be 100% reliable is the Bible. I know most people today don't agree with that, even in the church. But I believe it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it, at least for me.
And then he tells us, I declare, and declare to you, God is light. Light represents God's holiness, his purity, his truth, and life. I'm pretty sure if we didn't have light in this world, if it was dark 24-7, life would be unsustainable. What enables us to sustain life, to grow food, to be able to see, to work, and so forth, we need light. God is light. God is life. And so we could add to John's titles now. Probably familiar with his titles. One, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which he gave himself that title. <laughs> it's in his gospel. The elder, he's sometimes referred to as the elder. The apostle of truth. The apostle of love. We talked about that, didn't we? Little children, love one another. Well, we can add another title to John, the Apostle of Light. God is light. John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. You see, even though we have light in this room, and we have the sunlight for a good part of the day, which is a tremendous blessing, if you don't have life in Christ, you're literally walking through life in the darkness, stumbling around. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What did David write in the Psalms? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus is the word. He is the Logos. He is our light. John eight twelve. Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. God is pure light. Peter, James, and John witnessed that on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was glowing. He was beaming. Moses saw it on Mount Sinai. I mentioned how when Moses came down from the mountain and veiled himself, eventually, gradually, the glow wore off. So you see, the farther you are from God and the longer you stay away, the more the light begins to fade. The closer we get and the closer we stay to Him, the more enlightened we become. When we begin to drift or slide away, the light becomes dimmer and we run the risk of being engulfed by total darkness. I've heard this analogy before. I think it's a good one, and we'll close with it. Jesus is the Son, is He not? You see the connection? The warmth, the intensity, the brightness. He's the Son, and we are His moons. The only light that you and I have is that light that comes from Him. And as we are close to Him, His light reflects from us on to others. Moses got so close to God on Mount Sinai that he came back glowing. I guess a good final question this morning for each one of us. How is your glow? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this awesome passage here in 1 John. For this amazing man of God. 
the disciple whom Jesus loved, the elder, the apostle of truth, the apostle of love, and the apostle of light. Lord, we thank you for all that we are receiving already as we've just barely begun to go through this book. Lord, help us to receive that which you have spoken to us today, that your word would have uh, a direct impact upon our lives as we talk about being changed from glory to glory, being transformed. Lord, we know there's an initial transformation that takes place when we receive Christ. We're born again. We're converted. But Lord, we also know there's an ongoing transformation that can only continue as we draw near to you, Lord, as we stay in your word, in prayer, in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, so that you can continue that transformation process throughout the rest of our lives until we see you face to face. Lord, help us to be committed and dedicated to that process. Lord, that we would not, our light would not dim, it would not fade because we have drifted farther and farther away from you. But it would get brighter and brighter as we draw closer and closer to you. We ask for your help with this, Lord. Strengthen us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lead us, guide us, direct us. Help us to be willing to follow you wherever you lead us, even if it's somewhere we don't want to go. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.